Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16. And maybe when somebody, if, if you're using a pew Bible and you get there and you're just at the right page, shout that out so that somebody who's looking for it in a pew Bible will know the number. I forgot to get that. 1 Kings 16. Thank you. 252 in your pew Bibles. And I'm going to look at verse 29, which who knows, maybe that's on 253 or something, but you're going to be close. This is a fascinating story. If you've never heard this this morning or never heard this before this morning, you're going to be blessed by this story. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Now, I'll just tell you right off the bat here, Ahab is an evil dude. Ahab does not do what God wants him to do, but he serves as the king of Israel for 22 years. That's 22 years of having an evil king sit on the throne of Israel. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. You'd have to go back and read what those were, but it's not pretty. But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. So you've got a king of Israel who worships Yahweh, who sets up a temple. He builds a temple in Israel, worshiping another god, and then he sets up an altar inside that temple, worshiping that god. And he's on the throne, as I said, for 22 years. He has this place in Israel where he is really distracting people from worship of God. It says in verse 33, Ahab, Ahab also made an Asherah pole, which has to do with idol worship, and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than in all the kings of Israel before him. That's amazing to me. Like he does more evil than all the others and then ends up with this temple that he builds to another god and sets up the altar inside of it. He marries Jezebel. If you were to look over at chapter 18, verse 4, real quick, just notice what it says about Jezebel. If I have the right verse. Look what she does. Jezebel goes around... Putting to death, she arrests and kills the prophets of God. She arrests and kills the prophets of God, and she is the king of Israel's wife. Not good. And so God does something about it. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except my word, or at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, eastward and hide in Kiriath Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I will have, I will have ordered the ravens to feed you there. And so there's a prophet that arises in Israel, prophesies for God and says, there's going to be a famine in the land. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. And because he's the prophet who is being, no doubt, sought after by Ahab and Jezebel, God takes him to a place where he can be protected and where he's going to get water in the midst of the famine. 
And then this famine takes place and goes on for a number of years. Elijah is forced, in the meantime, into hiding. Now flip over to chapter 18, verse 1. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now that's just like saying to somebody, I've got a tank down here with all kinds of sharks in it. And I'd like you to just jump in there and have your way with those sharks. You beat them up or you, you know, you, whatever you're going to do, turn them into tuna fish. Do something with these sharks. Because Ahab is the king who's killing the prophets. And God says, I want you, Elijah, to go right into the lion's mouth and go talk to Ahab. Now, in the meantime, Ahab is actually out searching for Elijah, high and low. Fortunately, as the story goes on in chapter 18, there's a prophet named Obadiah, who is actually a follower of the Lord and who's right there at the top of Israel's leadership. And he loves God and he's taken a hundred of the prophets and hidden them away, hidden them away so that they wouldn't be killed by Ahab and Jezebel. And that's good. But clearly there is this horrible situation going on in Israel that is terrible. And so God specifically calls Elijah to do something about it. Look at chapter 18, verse 16. I'm going to read for quite a while here, so follow along with me, but you need to hear the story because it's a great story. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, This is after he'd seen Elijah, and Elijah said, you go tell Ahab I'm going to meet him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? With maybe one of the most ironic statements that is in all of scripture, as this guy who sits on the throne for 22 years is destroying the religion of Yahweh, and Elijah's trying to bring it back, and he says, you're the troubler of Israel, not hardly. Verse 18, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 850 prophets are coming out. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now, clearly here, it's interesting. There is some ambivalence here. Some are wanting to worship God. Some are wanting to worship Yahweh. And there seems to be no clear direction. I actually see, by the end of the story, you actually see a little bit of this even in Ahab, where he's clearly trying to, the word is syncretistic, bringing these two things together and trying to make one faith out of them. And Elijah says, you just can't do it. You either choose God or not. And then verse, uh, the end of verse 21, but the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now that's not actually true. Elijah doesn't know perhaps about all the other prophets that are still left. This is a mistake Elijah makes later as well. In terms of thinking he's the only one. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose for choose one for themselves and let them cut into pieces, put it cut into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. 
Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point I'm thinking, wow, there is a risk taker. I can remember very clearly, I've told you this story before, being in Zambia, sitting on a stool in the darkness with 10 or 12 Zambians around me, talking from Ephesians chapter 2 about the coming together of, of people into God's family. We're talking about all of that, but what these people really wanted to know was whether or not God is going to bring rain, because we were in the middle of a drought, and I'm sitting on a stool, and I, it was time for us to end, and I'm ready to lead us in prayer, and the thought rushes through my head, do I pray for rain? Because if I pray for rain and it doesn't come, my God looks really bad. But if I don't pray for rain, I'm faithless. And so I decided to pray. And I specifically prayed for rain. And I've told the story before. They hadn't had rain for months. I got up off my stool. I started walking about 200 meters through an open field that was supposed to be filled with maize crop that had come up, but it hadn't come up because it hadn't rained. And in the middle of that field, I started to feel the raindrops. And by the time I got to the, the uh, little trailer where I was staying, it was a downpour. And the sky just burst open. And there was a huge thunderstorm. And if you think to yourself, oh, that's just a preacher story... It is a preacher story, <laughs> but it is absolutely true because I was there. You could call Steve Mann on the phone today and say, Steve, did that really happen? And he would say, it absolutely happened, just like he said. It's a true story. But there was some risk there. What if God doesn't answer my prayer? And he did. <sighs> Elijah's risk is more. <laughs> He's calling down fire from God on a sacrifice and all the Baal prophets are there and all the people from Israel are there and they're all watching to see what's going to happen. So the people say, that's good, let's do that. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first since there are many of you. Call on the name of, our God, uh, of your God, but don't light, the, uh, light it on fire. Man, I'll tell you, I'm getting old. I can't see my own Bible. I got to get a, one of those Bibles with big words in it. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping, and he must be awakened. So they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the, Lord, the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. 
Then he said to them, fill four large jars and, of, uh, with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Oh, what a great line. God, you are turning their hearts back again to you. That's what you're doing. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And that's what you would cry if you were there. How could you not cry, The Lord, He is God, after seeing that spectacle and the prophet doing what he does in the name of Yahweh. And when he does that, oh, the people cry, the Lord, he is God. Well, very quickly, three things that I want you to see in this. First of all, look back at verse 21 in chapter 18. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And look at the response of the people. But the people said nothing. The people said nothing. No response. No repentance. No change. Not at this point. And God wants something different from his people. Clearly, he doesn't want ambivalence about who he is. Clearly, he doesn't want syncretism. This bringing together of ideas and coming out at the end with some kind of mishmash religious perspective. What he wants is devotion to him. He is God, there is no other, and there is no room for anything else. And so you can imagine that when Elijah says what he says, and he tells the people that they need to choose, and there is nothing but silence, it must have broken God's heart. The people said nothing. It's like... It's like lukewarm water. They couldn't make a choice. They wouldn't make a choice. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need anything. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And that's not just some story out of the Old Testament. That's a depiction 
of Christ's attitude toward the church when we don't say Yahweh is our God. Second thing, God does not tolerate worship of anything or anyone other than him. And it's not that I don't tolerate it. It's that God doesn't tolerate it. And I say that because in our world today, we live in such a pluralistic society, it's easy, so easy for people to have the idea that we can just all have different perceptions of who God is and we can all just come to him in our own way. Everybody's right. And that doesn't seem at all to be God's attitude about faith in him. I've heard a thousand times people say to me, there are many ways to get to God. And I always want to say to them, and I do sometimes say to them, what makes you say that? Like, does somebody give you this revelation? Someone told you there's lots of ways to God? What we do is we look around and we say a lot of people are trying to get to God in various ways. There must be many ways to get to God. Without asking the question whether or not God actually has something to say about that. And he does. He's revealed himself in Jesus, his son. And we need to be, in some sense, as rigid on this point as he is. I say in some sense, like I'm compromising. We need to be as rigid as God is on this point. And here's, here's a telling kind of comment. I don't think that God allowed his son to die on a Roman cross only to have his people 2,000 years later making the claim that somehow it doesn't really matter if you believe specifically in him. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, we don't have to be exclusive. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, it doesn't matter. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, it doesn't matter. We can be whatever we want to be. But if he died on the cross, if God sent his son to die for us and then he rose from the grave, then it matters. There isn't room then for us to mess around with whether or not God is God. Third thing, at the same time that we're going to be as rigid as God is on this point, we're going to have a completely different perspective on this than Elijah does. And the reason why is because of Jesus. And I don't think this is a hard thing to get. In fact, where's Hunter? Hunter, come here. I have primed Hunter in advance. Not to answer exactly how I want him to answer, but so that he would know that I was going to ask him to come and do this. Hunter, let me ask you, before all of these people, just imagine them all naked or something, you won't be nervous, okay? Before all these people, I want you to just answer this question. Are there any times in the Old Testament when God treats sin differently than he treats sin now with Jesus? Can you think of any of those times? Yeah. Like what? Give me one. Noah. Noah? What happens with Noah? He floods the world. Why does he flood the world? That's exactly right. People are being wicked. They're not following God and God floods the world. Can you think of any other time? Jonah? What about Jonah? Well, he kind of threatens people that he might 
Okay? There's a big threat, right? Sure, because people aren't acting the way they're supposed to do, right? He gets this. He gets that there is a difference between the Old Testament, the way that God did things, and how God does things with sin in Jesus. What does God do with Jesus in terms of sin? Jesus doesn't sin. And what does he do on the cross? He lets himself die. He does. Why does he do that? Because he's saving all of us from our sins. That's exactly right. He is saving all of us from our sins. And he wants the whole world to be saved from their sins. And Jesus dies on the cross because he loves human beings and he wants them to come to God and to be forgiven. Completely different kind of perspective. Hunter, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Jesus dies on the cross and he has now a completely different perspective on the world's sin than what he had in the Old Testament. And I don't mean that he doesn't hate sin. He still hates sin, but there's a completely different way of dealing with it. There's those times in the Old Testament when God just wipes people out because they sin. When is the last time that God wiped us out because of our sin? Hasn't happened. Some of you sin. Been wiped out lately? I haven't either. Why? Because God has done something different with Jesus. He's wanting the world to come and to be forgiven of our sins. He just treats the whole dynamic between God and sinfulness in humankind differently than he did. So it doesn't surprise me that God would actually treat those who are idolatrous different now than he did then. And so, in our relationship with other people, should we? Should I, should I go out this week and go downtown, maybe to uh, Olympic Plaza, I won't erect an altar down there. That'd get me in big trouble, okay? But should I go down there and do something to call out God and call out those who don't believe in God and who are idolatrous in some way and and ask them to come out? Let's have a showdown. And then at the end, after God has showed himself, I'll go kill them all. All those prophets. I'm thinking that that won't get me very far. And the fact is, is that God chooses to deal in a completely different way with people now than he did then. Are we going to be as rigid in terms of our faith in Jesus Christ as anybody would ever be in terms of their faith in God? Absolutely. We're going to be as faithful to Jesus and as exclusionary, as exclusive as Christ would be in terms of belief in him. But now... We treat people who believe differently, differently than they did then. We just, we we don't have the same perspective on what it means to not believe because Jesus has a different perspective on that than what God was dealing with those people then. He dealt with them in a certain way he needed to. Now we deal with people in a completely different way. And so Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, everything is devoted to him. Not to all the other gods, to him. But love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to say, believe God and then love your idolatrous, sinful disrespectful, God-hating neighbor as you love yourself. 
That's the gospel of Jesus. He calls us to something different. Just as exclusively devoted to God as anybody ever has been. But responding to our world in a completely different way. Because of the love of Christ for humanity. And we need to love them too. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for loving us like you do. We praise you and give you glory for who you are. We devote ourselves exclusively to you because you are God. But help us also to love those around us, even those idolatrous haters of you. Help us to love them. Help us to show you to them. And in the process, to change the world because they see you living in us, even in the ways in which we treat them. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.